life is brighter when we understand the science behind it. Hey everyone! Hello! Welcome back to Getting Brighter, the podcast where we shed light on the science of health, wealth and society. We'll be breaking down the latest research and providing you with practical tools for positive change. I'm Dr Emily Hughes, a social psychologist. And I'm soon to be Dr Marsha Remska and my background is in health psychology. And today we will be talking about neurogenesis. Yes, big word big there. Big word, <laughs> big word to kick us off. <laughs> Yes. So while this topic doesn't just stick to psychology per se, it actually veers into biology, physiology, medicine, neuroscience mostly. But still, it's very relevant to psychology and we've dug into the science and we're here to break it down. Yeah. So shall we get started? Let's. So first, to get everyone on the same page, let's just clear up some key terms so that we all know what we're talking about. The very first one is pretty straightforward. It's neurons. Neurons are simply brain cells. So every time you hear neuro, think brain. Yeah, nice and straightforward. Exactly. Then the next one that people might have also heard of, but might just not be entirely sure of, is stem cells. And stem cells are an incredible type of cell that can actually change into a number of different types of cells as it kind of grows up. So we say that it differentiates into different types of cells. Mm -hmm. And one type of stem cells is neural stem cells, so brain stem cells, yeah. that can actually grow up to be a number of different types of neurons. Because actually we don't only have the one type of neuron, our brain is made up of many, many, like tens of different types of neurons. Yeah. Okay, now we know what neurons are, what stem cells are. Then the next thing we want to clear up is neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to adapt and change in response to experience. Mm -hmm. So that can take a number of different forms. The first one can be as you experience something, the brain can produce stronger neural pathways or have different brain activation patterns that basically are associated with, are a consequence of the behaviours we have done a lot of. Mm -hmm. So a kind of practical example of this would be people who engage in mindfulness meditation, which we'll get back to later in this episode, actually show more activation in the regions of the brain that we know are associated with attention. And mm -hmm. that, I think, is fascinating. Yeah. So that is a, an example of the brain responding to experience and producing different types of activation. Another type of neuroplasticity is repair in response to injury. So mm -hmm. that can be, for example, if people experience brain trauma, the brain can rewire and almost like patch itself up mm. after it has experienced an injury. This can also mean that some of the brain functions that were previously kind of done in one area of the brain can almost migrate to a different area. Mm -hmm. So really some remarkable stuff about how the brain can repair itself. And an example of this would be people who have had a stroke and yeah. lost some of their function and then have had to kind of relearn to, you know, walk, talk, any number of things. And it might be that after stroke, those functions in their brain are actually located in a slightly different place. Mm. And neuroplasticity can also kind of show in growth in brain volume, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. there's one really interesting study looking at this, which I think some people might be familiar with. It's kind of quite a landmark study conducted by Eleanor Maguire's team at UCL in 2000. And this study looked at the brains of taxi drivers in London, which yes. I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. And obviously these are people that use spatial navigation a lot more than the average person. Person. And what they found in this study was that taxi drivers had a larger brain volume mm -hmm. in the hippocampus, which 
essentially is just a crescent shaped structure, which is deep in our brain and is largely involved in orientation and navigation among a host of other things as well. Mm -hmm. But basically what you also saw there was that change in brain volume was also proportional to the amount of time that these people had been working Mm -hmm. as taxi drivers, which I think really shows the brain's ability to kind of adapt to, you know, experience and and what we're learning. Exactly, exactly. And that final type of neuroplasticity, the growth in brain volume, Mm. largely comes from growing new brain cells, so growing new neurons, which brings us nicely to today's topic, neurogenesis. Yes. What is that? Neurogenesis is the process by which new brain cells, so new neurons, Mm -hmm. are formed in the brain. Okay, so neurogenesis literally means brain formation or brain new, if you were to break it down into literal meanings, right? Always break down big words and it makes it so much easier to know what they mean. Mm -hmm. So we have actually known that the brain can grow and that it does grow for a long time. That's not really a new finding. But the field used to think that this only happens in childhood when you literally go from kind of a bundle of cells to a fully fledged human and you gain a lot of new functions. So that wasn't really ever under debate. But we used to think that once your brain matures which usually is around the age of 25, that from then onwards, the only brain changes we see Mm. are just the gradual age-related decline. Yeah. So essentially, it's all downhill from (laughs) once the brain matures. It's an ideal, is it? a bit depressing. (laughs) A bit depressing. But that is what we used to think is the case. Mm. Whereas in roughly the 1990s, we started seeing some data showing that the adult brain can also produce new brain cells. Mm. And it does continue to renew itself in response to what we do. A lot of the early research and even today's research is still done in animals. So Mm. that will be mice, rats, birds, all sorts of animals, mostly because studying brain changes in humans has very obvious ethical concerns and we can't really do that. And a lot of these studies have to look at the brain in autopsy. Mm. So this is why a lot of the research we'll be discussing might have been done in animal models. And we will discuss kind of the implications of that as well. So in 1992, a research team from Australia actually found that adult mice brains Mm. continue to produce new neural stem cells, which means that those stem cells continue to produce new neurons. Therefore, Ah. adult neurogenesis in mice, at least, was discovered. Mm. This has since been confirmed in humans as well. Okay. And the field of neuroscience does by now agree that adult neurogenesis is a thing. Yeah. At least in the select few parts of the brain that kind of have been studied the most by far. The hippocampus, which you've just mentioned, being one of them. Okay. So while neurogenesis kind of is obvious in embryonic development and kind of early childhood. Mm -hmm. And this is occurring at a rate that's pretty fast. Mm -hmm. What we also see is that changes in adult brains are just as crucial. Mm -hmm. And importantly, which I think is a hopeful message, is that we have a lot more control over neurogenesis that's happening here. And obviously the brain is incredibly complex and we still don't fully understand Mm -hmm. it, as I think is nicely illustrated by how much change we've even just seen in what you've described there. A dramatic shift. But, you know, that is always going to be developing Mm -hmm. and we're always going to be under understanding more as time goes on. Yes. And because some of this science is still in relatively early stages, Mm. we don't exactly know all of the mechanisms yet. We don't exactly know, you know, how much of what do we need to do in order to guess the best results. But we have got a pretty good idea of some of the things that might be good for it. And that's what we'll be discussing today. Yeah. Brilliant. So now that we know what we mean by neurogenesis, Mm -hmm. why is it important? What kind of brains are the healthiest? So it turns out that the rate of neurogenesis, that is the amount of it that happens over a given time period, is one of the best predictors of 
general health and longevity. So mm. that is living a long, at least relatively healthy life. Yeah. And that is because the newborn neurons created through neurogenesis play crucial roles in memory, in regulating mood, in overall kind of cognitive function. Mm. And that is to say that more neurogenesis as an adult is almost like, think of it as, as a facelift for your brain. Yeah. Or, you know, it, keeping you young. <laughs> um, it keeps us sharp. It keeps us kind of withered, but also keeps us resilient to stress and happier, mm. as we're about to find out. The way neurogenesis does this is through a couple of different mechanisms. The first one is the fact that we've mentioned just earlier, as we age, the rate of neurogenesis naturally slows down. Mm -hmm. So the brain is renewing itself less and less. Yeah. And if we try and increase the rate of it, that means we can replace some of the neurons that otherwise would be lost mm -hmm. through this normal age-related decline, yeah. some of which is actually associated with some neurodegenerative diseases. Yeah, so like Alzheimer's, for example, yes. which we currently don't have a treatment for, but one of the key symptoms there is that kind of loss of memory mm -hmm. and cognitive function mm -hmm. that you see. Exactly. And then the second way neurogenesis can help us retain or improve brain function is that it can strengthen existing brain areas and essentially add brain volume and brain function. Mm. While they both happen through similar processes, that just means that, you know, if you're benefiting from one, the other one is likely to be happening as well. Mm. So the science here now essentially says that we can almost build up a reserve of neural stem cells that continue to produce new brain cells, mm. which keeps us resilient and buffers against these age-related or kind of environment-dependent declines. And that is essentially what a really prominent theory in this space says. And that theory is called the neurogenic reserve hypothesis for those of you that really want to yeah. look into the nitty-gritty of it. So now that we know how this happens, what are the consequences of kind of less neurogenesis? Yeah. That is having your brain not repair itself so much. We know is associated with, first of all, depression. Mm -hmm. We know that people who suffer from depression have smaller brains in some of the regions, including the hippocampus and also the kind of the frontal lobe, so the front of the brain. Yeah. And some research speculates that less neurogenesis might be the reason for this. Mm -hmm. Another thing that less neurogenesis can lead to is anxiety. Mm -hmm. And some really interesting studies done in mice who were genetically engineered to develop anxiety and to have the kind of genetic patterns that would predispose someone to being anxious. Those mice showed less neurogenesis in their brains. Mm -hmm. So we can see that there is a link between these two. Another possible result could be something like schizophrenia, where there are similar patterns of less brain volume different patterns of activation and less activation in schizophrenic patients versus healthy controls. Yeah. Another one we've already mentioned are neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia, and a bunch of other memory-related conditions. So really we can see that less neurogenesis across the board tends to be associated with some poorer mental health and physical health outcomes. Yeah. But I think one thing that's also really important to kind of highlight there is a lot of this research that we've just spoken about is correlational. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that's really important to understand in science is that correlation doesn't always equal causality. Um, and what we mean by that is that studies that show perhaps that less neurogenesis is associated with mental ill health doesn't necessarily mean that it causes mental ill health, right? So we're not really sure 
perhaps which way round the causality goes. Mm -hmm. So it could be that fewer healthy neurons lead to these conditions and are causing it, or that the conditions could drive changes in how we behave, which could result in fewer healthy neurons. So, you know, we're not sure which way the pattern flows, but I suppose what we really need to see to be able to detangle these two things is that you would need to compare a treatment as usual condition. So some people that aren't encouraged to engage in behaviours that might encourage neurogenesis and are just behaving as usual to those that are then instructed to engage in activities that you know might promote neurogenesis Mm -hmm. and see if you see a greater level of neurogenesis happening in the brains of those that are engaging in those activities. So that would be the kind of experiment that would perhaps detangle that relationship as opposed to a study that is looking at correlations. Yes, absolutely. I think when we look at science, it's always so important to be aware of what kinds of messages can a particular methodology give us and how far we can go with the inferences we make based on that methodology. And so coming back to some research, what does the science say on how we can increase the rate of neurogenesis in our brains? What kind of lifestyle habits, for example, might get us there? So a few behaviours have so far been proven to actually cause neurogenesis in kind of experimental studies, one of which is exercise. That was one of the first behaviours that was studied and actually found to to directly cause growth of new neurons. Researchers um, at the very beginning of this research actually studied rats who had a running wheel in that cage Mm -hmm. versus rats who did not. So, you know, those rats were able to engage in exercise. And they found that after only eight weeks, the rats with a running wheel who were engaging in exercise had healthier brains with about two to three times as many new neurons in Mm -hmm. the hippocampus. Wow. So a really stark improvement versus the rats that were not exercising. Mm -hmm. Data exists for humans as well. Mm -hmm. For example, in one study, they looked at older adults exercising three times a week over the course of one year, and they found about a two-year reversal in brain age as measured by kind of brain volume change. Mm -hmm. So really kind of starking data about how exercise can increase the rate of neurogenesis to the point where some researchers are now even saying that exercise might benefit mood, as we've discussed in the very first episode, because it might increase neurogenesis. So neurogenesis itself might be a a mechanism through which exercise and some other lifestyle behaviours actually keep us healthy. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Perhaps kind of clarify why that is happening. Yeah. Another lifestyle factor that we know is really important in the protection from or the development of conditions such as depression and anxiety is diet. And a lot of this research, again, has been done in rats. So a really interesting study using rats is one where half of them were fed a really high sugar diet for around four weeks and half of them were fed a normal diet. And what you saw there was that a high sugar diet reduced the rate of neurogenesis by 40%, which is quite something. Yeah. Another study in rats also found that a high fat diet, so mostly looking at saturated fats, reduced the level of neurogenesis in male brains, but not in female brains. And again, this difference is unexplained, but it is in rats. So something to be aware of there. Mm -hmm. Not all fat is bad fat though. So unsaturated fats like omega-3 and omega-6 fats are crucial to brain health, so much so that they can even reduce symptoms of depression, which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's from human data as well. Yeah, that is really interesting. Also, different types of food can be really influential. So 
polyphenols. This is a group of chemicals found in blueberries, grapes, green tea, and also spices such as turmeric. This is a group that has been associated with better cognitive performance due to the increase in neurogenesis that they can cause. Generally speaking, the Mediterranean diet has the most evidence for protecting against cognitive decline. And so what that means is a diet that is rich in vegetables, fruits, nuts, legumes, whole grains, and unsaturated fats. So think of a nice Greek salad or some fish. Also something that I think is really interesting, jumping back again to mice and research that's been conducted using animals, what you see is that mice that are fed a liquid or a powdered diet versus solid food that needs to be chewed have lower rates of neurogenesis and are more at risk for mood disorders. So I think wow. that's, that's quite a niche finding. Yes. But in terms of diet, it's quite an interesting one, particularly when you think of perhaps increases in kind of what we see in diet culture or supplement culture around kind of liquid diets or meal replacement. When you're not having to chew, that's a lower rate of neurogenesis, which I just think is quite interesting. Oh, yes, it's fascinating. I mean, it really does show that some of the things that we might not think would impact brain health actually mm. might do. But of course, this was done in mice. So there yes. is no way of knowing whether that would hold for humans. No, exactly. But still super interesting. <laughs> We're not coming for your shakes, don't no, worry. No, <laughs> yeah, you can keep your protein shakes. <laughs> and another behaviour that we know can cause neurogenesis is mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And for people who may not be familiar with this, mindfulness is a structured practice of paying attention to what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what's going on around us, and then also adopting a non-judgmental or an accepting attitude towards all that's happening. Mm-hmm. Some well-known examples that um, where people might be able to try this themselves include mobile apps like Headspace, Calm, Sam Harris is waking up. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a whole bunch of them. And of course, it can take other forms as well, not just that mobile app form. But we know that mindfulness meditation changes the brain for the better. That is both through increasing the volume, but also increasing the connectivity. So kind of how much different brain areas talk to each mm-hmm. other in areas that are responsible for paying attention, for regulating our mood and emotion, and also things that have to do with almost that like higher order processing Mm -hmm. of like you reflecting on something, reflecting on yourself, things like that. We know this from research that has scanned brains. So brain imaging studies, for example, can compare monks with decades of experience in meditation to a kind of average non-meditating person and they see the difference there. Or another way where they can actually test causality is by giving people a mindfulness program to follow for, you know, a matter of weeks or months and then looking at differences in the brain as a result of that program. So there are, again, different levels of evidence and different different inferences we can make based yeah. off that evidence. But the science is very clear on the fact that mindfulness does increase neurogenesis. It can help you train your brain. Yeah, amazing. Another really interesting thing that we know can cause an increase in neurogenesis is the use of psychedelics as therapy. Now, this is a really exciting area of research that's getting a lot of attention currently. Mm -hmm. I know that at the University of Exeter, there are loads of really great people that are currently working in this area, Mm -hmm. so much so that they're actually going to be having a course dedicated to teaching about this, which is great. Yes, exactly. So as we get more research, we are now having to start to train people up based on that research and how we can put it into practice. Mm -hmm. Now, when talking about psychedelics, we should very much specify that a lot of the substances we are about to mention are very much illegal. Mm -hmm. They're actually, most of them are classed as class A substances in the UK. And 
when we talk about the science on them, they are all delivered by trained clinicians in a very strict setting with closely monitored substances. So essentially what we're saying is don't do this at home, kids. Yeah, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of a research setting, research into psychedelic assisted therapy has shown some really remarkable findings. And some of these include a really great improvement in people with severe treatment resistant depression, also things like PTSD and addiction. So some of the substances that are being used in these studies are things like LSD, MDMA and also ketamine. And it's thought that one of the ways that these substances work is that they are chemically similar to serotonin, Mm -hmm. but only mimic its happiness inducing effects. So they essentially make different areas of the brain talk to one another more Mm -hmm. and result in these new neural connections and pathways being built, which in essence is neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. And as a result, psychedelic assisted therapy is now being looked into as a treatment for things like brain injury and also Alzheimer's. Yes, exactly. Some really exciting research coming out of the psychedelics space. Mm -hmm. So we've reviewed a number of different things that we know can help cause neurogenesis, but the research is still in relatively early stages. So neurogenesis isn't currently being kind of used as treatment Mm -hmm. for any condition just yet. But this is actually starting to change. So some research is already coming out that has used neurogenesis inspired health programs. Uh, For example, Professor Tracy Shores, based at Rutgers University in the US, is kind of a pioneer in this space. And some of the research from her lab has had participants engage in a combination of aerobic exercise. So they did, for example, 30 minute sessions of exercise two times a week, Mm -hmm. as well as mindfulness meditation. Also 30 minute sessions two times a week. And what they found in these studies is that those people show reduced levels of stress, less depression, reduced PTSD symptoms. And while they've not looked specifically at increased brain volume, they have looked at the patterns of brain activation and actually it has shown to change the way the brain works. Mm -hmm. Really exciting research there. Now, the reason the combination of exercising and mindfulness might be particularly effective for neurogenesis is because exercise, we know, increases the number of new neurons that are born, Mm -hmm. whereas the mental training through meditation can help increase the number of those neurons that actually survive that make it long term. And that is how that combination might actually be even better than either one of them independently. So this is actually an area that I'm also looking at in my PhD. So I I could talk about that combination (laughs) all day long. But I think what's really great about this research is the fact that it's so actionable. Yeah. Because those interventions are quite straightforward, quite accessible to the everyday person, we can all essentially strive to do that. Yeah, brilliant. So moving on to the next section of the podcast, which is debatable. Now, this is where we will be addressing some open questions and some points of contention in the research. So we've spoken a lot about animal research so Mm -hmm. far. And so I guess one concern could be that if so much research is looking at animal models, then how do we know that that science transfers? So humans are pretty different from mice after all. Mm -hmm. That's a very reasonable question, Mm -hmm. I think. But it's encouraging to know that we don't generally just take studies in mice and generalize them and just conclude, yes, this is how it works in a human. So there are many steps involved between a study in mice and us actually concluding something that might work in humans. Interestingly though, humans and mice or rats actually aren't all that different. So we share about 92% of the DNA and we have a lot of the same genes that have the same functions. Mm -hmm. So by studying those genes in mice and maybe manipulating some of the genes, we can learn a lot about what might work in humans as well. Yeah. So when you think about it genetically, we're not too different from mice. Exactly. So in fact, a lot of the recent breakthroughs in medicine, in science would just not have been possible 
without research in mice. And this goes particularly for research in the space of immunology and genetics, for example. It's also worth noting that the kind of model of using animal studies and then transferring some of the findings into human trials is very common in things like pharmaceuticals. Mm. So it's not exactly the first time we're doing this. It's just that the science is still in pretty early stages. And that is why we're discussing some of the studies in animal models as well as in humans. Yeah, that makes sense. And then finally, of course, one of the main reasons we actually do use mice is because from an ethical standpoint and from a practical standpoint, it is just much more feasible than conducting that same research in humans. Yeah, it would be very difficult to get ethical clearance to do some of this research in humans at the exactly. moment. Exactly. And yeah. we probably would not even want to. Yeah, so it wouldn't be possible, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Now, it's all well and good to say, you know, yes, neurogenesis is great. And in theory, we want more of it to be healthier. Mm -hmm. But do we actually know by now how meaningful some of these changes might be? And, you know, can, for example, a higher rate of neurogenesis maybe protect us from developing a mental health condition or even counteract the genetic risk we might be at for developing something like depression? Do we know that by now? So because the research is in such early stages, we don't necessarily have a definitive answer for this yet. Mm -hmm. But based on some of the studies that we've discussed so far, I think there's quite a good reason to believe that it could help significantly. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, what we're seeing is that neurogenesis is making its way into medicine and into neuroscience in terms of how we treat and how we you know, deliver therapy. So I think if some therapists are starting to offer therapies that are using techniques that might increase behaviours that improve neurogenesis, for example, and you have a reason to believe that you might be predisposed to a mental health condition, then I guess the message is that it can't harm you to mm -hmm. engage in some of these behaviours that you know might be associated with it because it can't hurt. It's probably not going to have any negative consequences, but it might have positive ones. Yes. Again, we're not endorsing people to do psychedelics. No, <laughs> anything but that one. <laughs> And so then I guess also practically, do we know how long we should be doing these behaviours for or engaging in these habits for in order for our brain to actually start changing mm -hmm. to Again, see neurogenesis? A really important question when it comes down to the practicalities of it. Mm -hmm. And here the answer really depends on what behaviour we're looking at. Yeah. So, for example, with psychedelics research, we see brain changes immediately with the first exposure and actually sometimes even up to a month after that single Mm -hmm. dose of psychedelics yeah so that's you know kind of very immediate whereas in things like mindfulness meditation studies find effects on the brain after a few weeks sometimes a few months so yeah. you know that will need to be kind of more of a long-term habit and then with exercise programs generally we see changes after a few months definitely after about a year or so mm -hmm. even though some studies have actually found effects of a single session of high intensity interval training. So HIT training yep. that has gotten really big a few years ago, even after a single session. So that does indicate that exercise kind of immediately helps boost neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. But in that research, the effects weren't actually maintained long term. Okay. So a single session doesn't actually make you continue to produce new neurons, which indicates that it might have to be a regular habit. So yeah. you might, you know, it really has to be a lifestyle kind of approach to neurogenesis if you were going to do it through exercise. Yeah, that's super interesting. So that leads us nicely on to the final section of the podcast, which is doable. And this is where we give actionable steps based on the science that we have discussed. So in sum, what can we do in our day-to-day -day lives to try and promote neurogenesis? Yes, that is all we want to know yeah. at the end of the day. There was a really helpful mnemonic developed by a team at Harvard, led by Dr. Rudolf Tanzi. And the mnemonic is SHIELD. Okay. That stands for sleep, handling stress, interaction with others, exercise, learning new things, 
and diet. Okay, let's break that down. Exactly. So in terms of sleep, we should aim to sleep at least seven to eight hours because we know that adequate amounts of sleep help regenerate the brain by clearing out some of the toxins and byproducts of that have accumulated during the course of the day just by virtue of us being awake. Mm -hmm. In terms of handling stress, we know that increased stress can produce more cortisol, which can have adverse effects on things like memory, on cognitive function, and of course, also on mood. So techniques like mindfulness meditation might help in this space because we know that mindfulness reduces stress. And there's a double whammy of meditation also being a mentally challenging task. So it's really a a win-win. In terms of interaction, we know from research that interaction with friends and family is really important. One really shocking finding perhaps is that chronic loneliness can double your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And potentially part of the answer as for why groups are so beneficial to health, as discussed in our previous episode, could be because social interactions are super complex Mm -hmm. and often make use of things like language and we have to navigate social dynamics and pick up social cues from one another, all of which is giving the brain plenty of work. So it could be that groups are really beneficial for health because they increase neurogenesis, perhaps, which I think would be really interesting for research to look into. Yes. (laughs) Ask Em about anything and she'll recommend getting a group. (laughs) the answer for all make some friends guys (laughs) the next one is exercise and we've spoken about this at length but regular aerobic exercise actually helps increase neurogenesis and really interestingly in the space of neurogenesis aerobic exercise comes out on top as the most beneficial so the first episode on exercise for mental health didn't necessarily point to a specific type of exercise as being the most beneficial but in the space of neurogenesis aerobic exercise that gets your blood pumping, that gets you out of breath, is what you want to be doing. High intensity interval training that we've previously mentioned have also shown to have some effects on neurogenesis, but this may not necessarily be maintained in the long term. Whereas for very light activity like yoga, we don't really have enough evidence to say that it does cause neurogenesis. Mm -hmm. But that's mostly because the research is in very early stages, so it's just hard to say. The data is just not there yet. Yeah. So in terms of learning new things, what we know is that learning increases the number of synapses in the brain. And when we say synapse, what we mean is essentially a communication channel between your neurons. And having more synapses improves brain resilience. So in terms of things you can do around this, it could be something physical or also something mental that is mentally challenging because anything new really makes the brain work hard which it likes it's really good for neurogenesis and this could take a number of formats so it could be things like reading even watching youtube videos that are mentally engaging and Mm -hmm. stimulating or again learning through conversation so speaking to one another learning new things it's going to be really good for the brain exactly And then finally, when it comes to diet, we have touched on some evidence in favour of Mediterranean diet and other mostly plant-based diets that we know can promote a healthy gut microbiome, something we have not yet talked about, but is super interesting. And this might help promote brain health through the gut-brain axis. Mm -hmm. That is the link between how the gut and the brain communicate with each other and also influence the whole body. So look out for an episode all about this later in this series. Yeah, very excited for that. Okay, so just to summarise everything we've spoken about today, healthy brains are brains that keep repairing themselves, much like most other tissues in our body. 
This helps starve off otherwise normal age-related decline in memory, cognitive function, and also can protect from psychiatric disorders like depression. This process of self-repair is called neurogenesis, and this field of science is currently popping with new findings. There's always going to be new things to learn. Some of the things we can all do to keep our brains healthy and to increase our rate of neurogenesis include living a generally healthy lifestyle, so think regular exercise, enough sleep, eating a healthy diet, and then also continuing to do mentally and physically challenging things. That might be learning new things or just kind of continuing to challenge yourself. So whether you're still in formal education or if you're all done with it, your brains will really thank you if you kind of keep pushing them and keep challenging them. So learn a new language, take up crocheting yep. or kind of join a new group to make some new friends and your brains will really thank you for it. Yes, they will. That's it for today, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. If you're getting brighter from this podcast, then make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you're there, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a review of anywhere up to five stars. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, or you're just nosy and want to put faces to the names, then you can find us on all our socials at Get Brighter Pod. And if you're a bit more old school, we also check our emails at getbrighterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear everyone's takes and hear what you have to say, so do share. Yeah. We'd like to thank the Southwest Doctoral Training Partnership for supporting this podcast. And to finish off with, our disclaimer. The Getting Brighter podcast is separate from our research and teaching roles at our respective universities. However, it is part of our shared passion for communicating science in an accessible and enjoyable way. Any advice given does not consider your unique individual circumstances, and we encourage you to seek professional guidance before making any significant lifestyle changes. Bye, Bye. everyone. See you next time.